Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Is Neil Garfield here, and this is Thursday, January 12th. 2017. Hard to get used to that 17. I've written 2016 and corrected it more times than I'd like to admit. Good afternoon for those in the western time zones and good evening to those in the east. Joining me as co-host of the show is Charles Marshall, an attorney in California who has been a frequent guest on the show. Welcome, Charles. Yes, hello. Uh, great to be back again, Neil. And, Charles, tonight we have Patricia Rodriguez coming back. Um, if she's able to dial in, I think we had some issues momentarily before the show. Uh, after last week's show, to talk more about the issues of resolution and tender and standing issues, those are technical issues and technical terms. But boiling it down means what happens in, in terms of tender, the, the question there is what happens if you offer a monthly payment when it is due and it is rejected? Or what happens when you offer full payment before it is due but after acceleration and that is rejected or ignored? There are actually answers for that but it does vary from state to state. And on standing, we have constitutional standing and prudential standing. Uh, If prudential sounds like a lot of puffery and vagueness, it's because prudential standing is a very vague concept. It's It's been defined as many different things and hundreds of different conflicting opinions across the country. Constitutional standing is simple. If the party is su- uh, if the party who is suing uh, has suffered or is suffering economic damages or some other cognizable damage, then that injured party may sue. If not, they can't. The fact that somebody did something that you're calling wrong doesn't mean you can sue them unless, of course, they hurt you by doing that something wrong. So if some stranger finds out or just thinks that you probably haven't made your mortgage payment, that stranger can't sue you even if he turns out to be right. That, the fact that you didn't make the payment causes no injury to that stranger. And this is 
a central point to the whole mortgage mess and why judges have gotten so confused and so many of them have said, well, you know, what difference does it make? You didn't make the payment. Well, it makes a big difference. And in California, I'm sure that uh, uh, Charles uh, can speak to this in the even over decision. They point, the, the, the Supreme Court of the state of California made that point. Yes, so, they did. Do. They, they made it clear that you have to you have to know as the borrower who the proper party to pay is. So, these are important issues that need to be thoroughly understood by lawyers, who can then educate judges across the country. The judges, you would say, are lawyers, and they shouldn't need education. But the truth is, there's no lawyer on earth that knows everything about every law and every doctrine. And those that even know it may not know it well, unless they have reason to investigate it. So addressing the obvious aspect of this, we have an article coming out on Monday on the Living Lies blog that answers the question, what difference does it make? You got the loan, didn't you? There's about probably a million homeowners out there have, have gotten that, have been on the receiving end of that question. The spoiler alert is no, I didn't get the loan. And tonight, Patricia Rodriguez, who I see is now on the line, will help you decide on your options and strategies in confronting the greatest economic crime in human history. Stay tuned for that. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lives blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lives, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lives blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog. It's just a matter of a click. Or call 202-838-6345, our main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you and you'd like to see it continue, and you'd like to see us continue to help you and volunteer our time, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. So... Charles, are you ready to get into tender and standing issues? Uh, yes, absolutely, Neil. And right. Patricia handling these cases in California, as I do, I know she'll have a lot to weigh in on, you know, on this topic. And this is an area well, of law that's in, in, in process. So I'm, I'm interested to hear what Patricia has to say. Well, Patricia is with us. And she can be reached at 626-888-5206. And she is located in Pasadena. Patricia, how has your week been? And welcome to the show Hi. again. Hi. Hi, Neil. It's so glad, I'm so glad to be back. And it's, it's good to hear everybody's voices. You know, it's a little rainy over here in Southern Cal, which isn't too typical. But otherwise, you know, just waiting for the sun to come out tomorrow. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've been watching that rain. Uh, seems like uh, some type of historic event out there. Oh, it always so, goes that way when it rains and drizzles out here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I will say, Neil, that, Neil, in Northern California, it is an historic event. I mean, we're talking about dozens of feet of snow. It's not that it's unprecedented, but it hasn't been seen in years, maybe decades. Well, here in Florida, we don't know anything about snow. So, but we do know about the snow job that the banks have given us and the various approaches to uh, home retention, which is holding on to your home while the storm blows and maybe coming out of it with uh, uh, either um, the home uh, as a free house, which rarely happens. It should happen more often, but it rarely happens. Or some sort of resolution that enables uh, the homeowner to be in a credible position to demand a, uh, a loan modification that reflects economic reality as opposed to a loan modification that in itself is headed towards foreclosure anyway. And Patricia, that's one of the things that you do when you are interviewing prospective clients is to determine what uh, the facts need to be in terms of reality in order to make this deal work, right? Correct, absolutely. You know, we try to make it a very holistic review of the file. We look at the public record. We look at any audits that have been performed in the origination of the loan, in the servicing of the loan, or at the selling of the loan. We want to look to see if there are any accounting issues, such as the interest and principal not being applied correctly. We want to look at how the loan was transferred, were they properly notified under the federal statutes, and was the proper entity that's trying to foreclose the actual true entity that has a right to foreclose, or was there some void nature of the transfer that completely kills the transaction? Exactly. And, you know, I know you spoke about this on, the, on a show a long time ago, but I think it's worth mentioning um, you've approached this business like uh, in a business-like way, like many other people that uh, uh, I know and most of whom I helped get started. Um, tell us a little bit about how you process uh, uh, prospective clients uh, because it's different than the usual one-person law office where the lawyer does everything uh, from the very first phone call to uh, however it ends up with the, the lawyer being retained or not. Right. So our process is kind of a horizontal and a vertical method. And so the one you described is a completely vertical method where um, you start with person A and person A stays with you throughout the entire time. Um, 
our process is more organizational in that and horizontal in that first you're going to talk to our intake department and your, our intake department is going to pre-screen you because you know everybody's time is very valuable and precious and we don't want to take your time or our time if we can't help you so the first thing we identify in the free consult is is this even something that we can help you with and if it's not is it something we can refer you to someone else who can help you if it is something we can help you with, then we break down for you what it is that we do, exactly how we do it, and how it can benefit and help your particular case. At that stage, if you're interested further, then we break down the fees that it would cost. And if you have an interest in talking to an attorney about very specific questions you have about that process, then we set up a three-way with an attorney either in office or over the phone. And once you've retained, you then make your payment and we start working on your case immediately. It is assigned to an associate attorney as well as a paralegal and everything is overseen by myself personally. Every single Sunday, I look at every single case as if it was my only file and I determine what next needs to happen on the case. And then that's done by an associate. I approve it and proof it and then it's, it's out the office for the outside world. So that's pretty um, comprehensive of our process. I, th I think that's a good process, and uh, I, I admire it. I um, uh, have outlined similar processes for other people to do. I'll tell you the reason why I don't do it and why probably uh, other lawyers don't do it is that I'm not very good at, at management uh, of, of an operation, and I have very little patience for the uh, office politics that inevitably occurs and so you've got to have a kind of a business not only acumen but uh, a, a, a business approach that matches your style of uh, um, uh, of doing business in order to follow that model but I, I do endorse the model because the uh, the, the problem with what what most lawyers are doing is that, as uh, as you just said, Patricia, there's a, a lot of people who are coming in for the for a free consult or even a paid consult, in which nothing can be done for them for some any number of reasons. And to take up the lawyer's time with that, or even a paralegal's time with that, is uh, uh, not productive and certainly not helpful to either the the person who thought that they were a prospective client uh, or to the firm. So I I definitely endorse that model, and I I think it makes sense, and it's kind of the same as a doctor's office. When you go in, the doctor doesn't greet you. When you go in, you have reception that greets you, have you fill out some forms. Then you go in and a, uh, a nurse uh, or a medical technician uh, takes your blood pressure, gets your weight, and you know maybe checks your blood sugars and things like that. And then all those results are tabulated, and then it is finally given to the doctor 
who then comes in and is able to do an intelligent consult with you rather than asking a bunch of questions that anybody could have asked you. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I do like that model. Charles, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I agree with your assessment of that, Neil. And I think the way Patricia has set this up, it makes her entire operation and handling of the relevant cases uh, not just streamlined, but all the particular aspects of the case that need to be analyzed from the beginning through you know, the filing of lawsuits where appropriate, through uh, you know, post-litigation and, and settlement scenarios which happen during the pendency of these lawsuits. I mean, with her model, all that can be handled you know, efficiently and smoothly and strategically. I mean, that's the other thing. If you have that type of organizational setup, it's easier to identify where a particular case is at a given time, and that way you can bring to bear relative to that case and for you know for the particular clients involved in that case you you can you can make sure that the best option is being chosen you know to fit the circumstances at the time. And I think that uh, uh, for those lawyers who are listening who either are already involved in foreclosure defense or are thinking about it, um, um, I hope you don't mind this, Patricia, but I would suggest you getting in touch with Patricia and uh, paying her or her team to uh, consult with you on uh, organizing your practice. I see too many lawyers out there who get caught up in the logistics of their practice and as a result, their performance in action, whether it be writing pleadings or appearances in court, that performance suffers because they're juggling too many balls at one time. So, Patricia, would you be open to receiving calls like that from lawyers across the country? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I, I certainly do seminars at various times that uh, also elaborate on the model, but, um, you know, we do... Uh, usually two-hour blocks at a time at 2.50 an hour and can reduce that for more time that's spent with us. But certainly, um, you know, my background, having a business degree from USC at the time was a top 10 business school, I definitely have a, a business perspective from it before I have a legal perspective. Um, you know, the law is just kind of what the product is versus how do you best present that product. You know, and business school really just – enabled me to see that everything has to be delegated out to the person who does the best at it, you know, so there's a little bit of more free, you know, um, information there, but really you want to isolate everyone to do what they're very best at. And that's why the horizontal method works really well. But I do also appreciate that no client wants to be passed around from associate to associate, from lawyer to lawyer. They don't want to feel like, they don't want it to be like they are going from one law firm to the next law firm. So I make sure that once a case is assigned out to an associate and paralegal, it stays with that associate and paralegal. So really it's just like you have two and maybe even my managing attorney assigned to your case. So you may have three lawyers that all know exactly what's going on with your case because it's now become a vertical uh, process with those three lawyers or one or two of those lawyers. 
Um, so you get the benefit of the horizontal method and that everybody is really doing what they're best at, and you get the benefit of the vertical in that you're not being passed around from lawyer to lawyer to lawyer. Yeah, I think I, I think that's a very good model. I really like it. So let's move along from business to law. Um, two issues that uh, we just barely touched on at the end of your visit last week uh, were uh, uh, tender and standing. Um, and just start off with standing because I think that is... Uh, I believe that it is the key issue in the whole mortgage crisis um, and that if it was properly addressed and lawyers were able to properly educate or convince a judge to listen, I think that a lot of cases would go uh, in the direction of the homeowner rather than the so-called bank or servicer. So talk to me a little bit about how you've dealt with the issue of standing and where you think it, that issue might be headed. Well, to start with, you know, we have been tackling this issue for some time back to the days when we were looking at Ibanez and Iowa, you know, and we were asking that same question of who has the right to enforce the debt? Who's this stranger to the transaction? You know, at least in California, it's really broken down along the lines of pre foreclosure and post foreclosure. You know, pre foreclosure, there's still some question as to whether or not you have standing to challenge a wrongful foreclosure. There is no question that post non judicial foreclosure, you have a right to challenge the foreclosure. That second question now becomes, once you have the right to challenge it, what is a valid challenge? Certainly the courts have found that if you can prove that it is void, you know, and it should be if they were following the law correctly, if you make the allegation that it's void, then you get past the pleading stages at least. Now, getting past the motion for summary judgment, you need to actually prove and show that the assignment is void. The issue of void versus voidable has become the hot button for California in that the securitization and the failed securitization, the loans not making it into the trust by the closing date, courts have been finding makes the loan voidable, makes the assignment voidable, but not void. And so you can't challenge that. Um, that seems problematic on a lot of levels. It's only a couple of court of appeals, the second district, I believe, and the fourth district who've come out that way at this point. We still have the fifth district, the sixth district, the first district who could come out differently, who could take us back into the California Supreme Court for them to once and for all answer the question, is the fact that they did this act outside of the contract, outside of the trust, make it an invalid transfer? And, and seemingly, I think the answer is pretty blatantly obvious, yes. You know, they cite New York law as saying, no, you know, th they can ratify this ultra-violent act. The problem with that is that it's not some miscellaneous, like, administrative task. This is a substantive issue of who has the right to enforce the debt. And that substantive issue, the substance of whether or not it made it to the trust by the closing date, that cannot be anything but void once you get to the assignment. And... I would add to that uh, and, uh, and then give it over to Charles uh, for comment, but I'd add to that that the fact that the the assignment document 
was not completed uh, and delivered, you know, at uh, before the closeout date or the cutoff date of the so-called trust doesn't mean that the trust even exists or that it has any assets or that it is cognizable at law. So the void aspect of this could be as as simple as the Asinor didn't have title to it, so the the assignment meant nothing, to the assignment may have been an assignment from an owner but wasn't valid because it wasn't put into the trust at the time that was it was required to be in order for the trust to take ownership. And that gets into an issue that is, I brought it up in a couple of cases, successfully actually, where I question the ability of anyone who's representing the trust to say that the trust accepted that late assignment into the trust and whether any action was taken by the trustee because that's how the trust acts. It's only through the trustee that would have accepted the So there's a lot of reasons why the foreclosure was wrongful and why it may be based on a void premise. It's not just the assignment. Charles? Well, I think you have a good framework, you know, for this, Neil. Uh, essentially, going forward in California, I believe for our side to prevail, we are going to need to show that there's a fundamental issue with the trust, or there's a fundamental issue with the legal authority of the trust, the trustee, nominal or otherwise, of the trust, to accept a late assignment. Uh, because I've, you know, I've had some recent appeals, and and the one that was framing this issue the most directly and unfortunately starkly was a first district court appeal, and that was just decided, I believe, on December twentieth, and the the essentials of that court holding are that Glasky is essentially defective law related to the, the issue that I think Patricia framed quite accurately and succinctly as to void versus voidable, particularly relative to late assignments into a securitized trust, which in the vast majority of cases will be either New York or Delaware. And this this court, you know, and in, in my uh you know in my appellate case heard in early December and ultimately decided on December 20th, it held that Glaske is dead on this issue. And it fought the argument that Glaske was only based on one since overruled decision out of, out of New York law. And therefore, it should have no valiance on this whole issue of void versus voidable. I mean, in point of fact, and of course I brought this up at the appellate hearing, there are district courts, 
state and even federal, there are superior courts, there are various levels of, of court review all over the country in both judicial and non-judicial foreclosure states. So for them to cherry-pick some New York decisions doesn't speak to the reality that jurisdictions outside of New York are deciding all across the board on these cases. There's still a lot of decisions coming out of Illinois, Massachusetts, that are inconsistent. Yeah, other parts of the yeah. country that are finding that these types of transactions, whether the latest assignment, are void. That's just voidable. But unfortunately, the uh, appellate panel has accepted the narrow interpretation of the defendants in this case, and that's something that I think we need to get around. I think you framed one way that we might do that, Neil, relative to attacking the trust themselves or the ability of the trustees to sign off on a late assignment. The other thing that, Patricia, I want your take on this. This came out in a conversation between me and a few lawyers earlier in the week. The void versus voidable thing that you're dealing with is based upon the possibility of ratification, right? Correct. Okay. So the question that was posed to me is, isn't this, doesn't this go back to standing in that the real question is not whether it could be ratified, but whether it was. What action did the trustee actually take to accept this, and what actions did the beneficiaries take to ratify it? If they had not done so, up until the, the moment when a judge was looking at this, then it's like that whole argument in the judicial states, whether or not they had a completed assignment after or before they filed suit. So were they, were they really a, um, is there even a question of whether or not they are, that, that is to say the trust, is a holder here when the um, in in fact the so-called assignment a was delivered after the cutoff date and b no further action was taken by the beneficiaries to ratify and nothing was done by the trustee to accept, and nothing was done by the trustee to even notify the beneficiaries that the issue existed. And, and, and the, the tangential question to this was that is it reasonable to assume, as the courts have been doing, that ratification would occur on a loan which is clearly in default? What do you think of that? Well, I think the main challenge at this point is they're saying once they've concluded that this is a voidable issue and not void, they're then backing to you don't have standing. So they're saying at that stage that we've determined it's voidable, you don't have standing to challenge 
how it's been ratified or if it's been ratified because we tried to attack that very issue. Like, okay, so you're saying that the loan is voidable. That means that it had to have been ratified. There had to have been something done to fix what was wrong. So now let's look at that assignment and see if it truly fixes it, if it actually ratifies or does anything. But And generally because it's been done so many years later, it couldn't possibly have ratified that. But they're stopping us at the gate saying, you know, we're all back to the standing issue of if all you can show is that it's voidable, we don't have to talk about whether the ratification was proper because now we're just talking about a lack of standing again. Oh, and Neil, that's that's my experience as well, exactly what Patricia just related. My experience is that judges are saying once it's positioned as voidable, you know, this whole situation we're talking about, once it's positioned as voidable, the only parties withstanding under under the sort of legal framework that's being acknowledged in both pleadings and court results, the only uh, parties withstanding are the investors themselves and, you know, kind of some other business interest that might have been impacted by, you know, a defective assignment, let's say, affecting the the tax-exempt status. But they specifically, these decisions and analyses, have excluded borrowers from having standing. Every other type of interested party might have standing, but, but they've shut down borrowers once it's considered voidable. That's the status. That's the status in California right now. So, what about going the other direction? If the um, if the Asinor well, let's start with this. If there was, I'll ask both of you, with Patricia, if the there's no evidence that the trust paid for the assignment, what is your opinion of what that assignment uh, is worth in in a legal sense? It's not always like what. The law actually says it's more about perception. And in the judiciary, they perceive those assignments as correcting any previous laws. So the bigger so, thing you have to tackle, the bigger thing you can tackle there, the thing that you can challenge there is, did they give you proper notice of that assignment? But that assignment is carrying a lot of weight with the courts as it as it stands now. You can also challenge, you know, who signed the assignment, who um, provided the assignment, right? If Bank of America provided the assignment after, I'm sorry, if Countrywide, for instance, signed the assignment and provided the assignment after Bank of America had already taken over and Countrywide didn't exist anymore, we have a pretty strong argument that that's a void assignment because an entity that doesn't exist anymore that has nothing can't transfer something it doesn't have anymore. It had already transferred its interest from Countrywide to Bank of America. Now, some are going to say that they were one and the same, and so it's in, you know it still doesn't matter. But some courts are going to see that as problematic. I see what you're saying. I'm and, and uh, Neil, one thing I would say, one thing I would say related to your point is that you know what you're describing, it it is a potential angle. I I think that courts. You know, the pleading from our side on the, on this whole question of whether the trust has really been paid for a specific assignment or, to put it the other way, whether 
all of the financial interest in whatever was transferred from the originator of these the, the, these loans to the purported assignment securitized trust. You know, there there is a lot of finessing and what happens to the money and what money is transferred. I think that's still an area that is not fully vetted. I think that's still an yeah, area I mean, where, where we could possibly get play on our side. I mean, the courts yeah. have shut it down, but it's a question of, of more specific pleading. We might be able to get traction, potentially. Yeah, in my opinion, uh, I understand completely what you and Patricia are saying, but History shows with things like this that there's only so long the courts can keep a lid on a boiling pot that has no vent. And the issue here, as I've been saying since 2007 when I started the blog, is that if you follow the money trail, it does not in any manner, shape, or form uh, follow the paper trail. The the two go in completely different directions. There is no money in in many of the actual originations. There is no money from the party named on the note. So there's your first divergence. And there is no money from the first party that receives an assignment from the originator who didn't loan any money. And that keeps going up the chain. There's no money. The money trail goes in a completely different direction. The only time the money issue comes back into play with these people is when there's a liquidation of the property as a result of a forced sale by foreclosure. Then they they come around using that pile of paper that they've created that has no relation to any transaction in reality, and they liquidate the property, and they say, we made these servicer advances. We take all the money from the liquidation of the property. The investor gets nothing. Meanwhile, it was the investor's money, not through the trust, but directly diverted from the trust to closing tables around the country for origination rather than acquisition of loans. So the money trail, if the paper trail was to be congruent with the money trail, then the paper trail would show the investors at the origination of the loan or when the loan was first purchased, if in the rare cases where the originator actually funded so I guess what I'm saying here is I get, and, and what I'm trying to communicate to the audience, is I get completely and I accept the fact that, you know, it is what it is. The courts are just not buying these things. But with continued pressure, they're going to have to. It's like civil rights and a whole bunch of other things that have gone through the courts and there's been all kinds of resistance. Um, and I think the same is true about rescission. I think that that is eventually going to be heard by the Supreme Court again, who's going to say, I think, um, why do we have to tell you this again? Rescission is effective upon mailing. 
and it's up to the other side to bring a lawsuit. It's not up to the borrower. The, the rescission is effective. The mortgage and note are gone. So, and we, we're seeing, and I, and I guess you guys are seeing it uh, as much as I am in my reviews of cases, that even where that so-called three-year rule doesn't apply, in other words, the, the homeowner has sent the notice of rescission within the three years, the courts still don't want to do it. That's been my experience too, Neil, on the issue of rescission. I've had one exception, but that's it. So, Patricia, what's the takeaway from our conversation between last week and this week about what homeowners who are listening to all this technical language and argument and all this other stuff, what's the takeaway for a homeowner who's listening to this show about what they can do to save their home from being forcibly sold in foreclosure? Sure. I mean, the number one piece of advice, the number one thing I can tell people is don't bury your head in the sand. Don't wait until the last minute and don't think that a miracle is going to happen. It's going to take time. It's going to take energy. It's going to take effort. You know, whether that time, energy, effort is spent doing it yourself or finding the right lawyer to do it for you. But it's not something you're going to be able to fix in a day. It's not a problem that, create, that was created in a day. And if you wait that long, you'll find that you're not able to properly um, protect your property. So the number one thing is just reaching out and getting the right people to help you. From there, you know, it's, it's doing the groundwork with your attorney, getting them the documents that you expect, that they expect from you, um, getting everything that they ask you for and being in contact with them. You know, you don't want to be overbearing and sending an email every single day, but you don't want to be that client that's just completely unreachable and not engaged and not involved. You want to be accessible and involved and engaged when necessary, and you want to be respectful and trusting of your lawyer when necessary. If you don't have a relationship that you can trust your lawyer, then you shouldn't have that lawyer. Well, those are good words because a lot of people need to hear that. And frankly, uh, one of the things that I know every lawyer who's listening to this broadcast will would confirm is that the majority of clients do come in when it's either too late or almost too late, and we just can't do the the right work in the time allotted because there's been too much damage procedurally that's already happened because they didn't the 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 homeowner just wanted to ignore it was hoping that it would go away was hoping for a miracle like you say um, and then they realize there's no miracle I better get a lawyer but. You know, there's no magic bullet where you go, oh, I got a lawyer, now everything's good. The lawyer's got to be able to do something, and if you don't give them the time or the necessary uh, uh, facts and, and cooperation to do anything, then you're uh, essentially, you've shot yourself in the foot, and unfortunately, the court's uh, version of due process in this country is that you have an opportunity to be heard, but you don't have a requirement that you should win. So uh, I want to thank uh, uh, 
we're running out of time here. Okay, so I want to thank Charles Marshall for joining me as co-host. His number is 619-807-2628. And a special thanks to Patricia Rodriguez, whose uh, contact number is 626-888-5206. And you can also get her link on my blog. Thank you very much for joining Abby. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.